Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. Hello, and welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. My name is Nasser Pasha. Now, Matt Staub. And? And we're uh, two attorneys here with Pasha Law. I know it's been a little bit, I guess it's been probably a full month since the last time this came out. I think we're both a little older, a little wiser. <laughs> Definitely older. I think that's how time works. <laughs> so, yeah, welcome to the podcast where we discuss current business news with a legal twist. And today, we're going to discuss whether or not businesses can require employees to speak only English while at work, which is something I've actually thought about before. You and I are both in, I guess, locations where it might be more applicable than others. Yeah, I mean, Houston is like a metropolitan when it comes to languages and cultures. I mean, it's not a New York, but I mean, it's pretty close. And of course, San Diego, the the Latin community there is just absolutely huge. And in fact, not knowing Spanish is, is quite a detriment, which is why I moved out right away. <laughs> right away. <laughs> After a long number of years. Yeah. Location is not everything because one story we're going to touch on here deals with a situation in Milwaukee. So that's true. This is uh, pretty expansive, but let's dive into this. So a, a small mom and pop store in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Leon's Frozen Custard is having some issues. I, I guess a customer named Joe Sanchez, said he was behind a Spanish-speaking woman while he was in line at the Frozen Custard store who was told by an employee that she had to place her order in English. So I guess Mr. Sanchez thought that was a little bit weird. When he got up in line, he was too told that he had to order in English. At that point, the employee told him, the employee who speaks both Spanish and English, that she was not allowed to speak Spanish to the customer, even though that they could have a perfectly fine and understandable communica- or conversation speaking in Spanish. And I just got to note, this Leon's frozen custard is, it's apparently kind of a staple in the area. I mean, it's this kind of cool kind of, I don't know, almost looks like an old, like a studio diner kind of deal. If you look at it, it reminds me, have you guys ever been to that frozen yogurt place in El Cajon? It's called the, oh gosh, the mill? I don't think so, no. Obviously, I can't now, but you got to check it out. Okay. It's a good... <laughs> Good summer place to go to get some, hold on, frozen yogurt. I'm looking it up. I think it's called the mill. Perfect timing in November. I guess it's been, <laughs> it's been pretty high here Perfect today. timing. Yo- yeah, the yogurt mill. Yeah, yogurt And it, you know how like they, they have these all, these, this is before yogurt places were popular where you'd pay per ounce. This is like you pay a few bucks and get a whole large cup of yogurt. Yeah. Of whatever flavors you want, you know, and usually in the summers, there's lines out the door like every single day. Check it out. Anyway, <laughs> quick plug. And they definitely did not sponsor this program, but definitely will be asking for money after this. But go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, we're like the podcast where we do do a sponsor randomly in the middle, which does exist for a lot of them. <laughs> so we have this situation here and the owner of this Leon's Frozen Custard, Ron Schneider, not to be confused with Rob Schneider, has stated that- I was confused. <laughs> he's had a- he's claiming that he's following the law and that his po- this is before this fall happened. He's following the law and his policy is a matter of business and speeding up sales and not one of discrimination. He said he's had this policy in place uh, for more than a decade when an increasing number of Spanish speakers moved into the area in Milwaukee. And this policy, what it was, is that employees are required to speak only English, not only to each other, obviously and then to the customers as well. 
he's initially claiming policy is about running an effective business, no discriminatory discriminatory purposes. That was the initial policy. There was obviously some some fallout here, and now he's kind of coming around a little bit, saying he's lightening up on the policy. While he said he'll allow employees to speak with customers in Spanish, he'll continue to ask his employees to speak English between each other, which is interesting, but then not so kind of makes sense when you listen to this quote he has here. If anybody comes up in here, employees are instructed to do whatever they can do to help them. If you talk in Spanish, fine. But if you come up and speak German, we're going to have a problem because we don't have anybody here that speaks German. So he's obviously learned his lesson. Yeah, it's a little strange. And apparently this Rod Schneider guy has his spouse and children are Hispanic. So uh, it kind of throws you, throws you to loop there. And that's actually part of his defense. It's like, hey, I'm not trying to discriminate here. It's just this is how... I want to do business, I suppose. And I mean, here's the thing. It's like, I think from his perspective at first, it may not be that big of a deal. And he may not be thinking the repercussions of this policy. It's like, hey, I just want to create an environment that people speak English. And somehow he believes that somehow, what was his excuse that? To speed things along and make it more efficient. To speed things along? Yeah. I I guess, I mean, I'm trying to think how that kind of logic works out. But even assuming he's correct, that it speeds things along, which I think is a very tough sell. For people in different states and different cultures and understanding of things, that that kind of policy is obviously jarring. But perhaps to him, obviously, it's not. And and there's a lot of things like that that employers do, possibly innocently or ignorantly, depending upon how you look at it, and and don't really take into consideration the legal implications that that may, may impose. I don't even think it's possible that this could be more efficient because the situation I'm envisioning is somebody shows up to this place where English is their second language, being yeah. forced to speak, exactly. to communicate in English where it's going to take them longer, presumably, to do so. If the other, it's, It'd be one thing if the person was showing up speaking Spanish to somebody that didn't speak Spanish, but if the employee's capable of speaking that language... And that's the customer's first language, and it's definitely going to be more efficient that way. But I, who, who am I to judge? <laughs> yeah, who are you to judge? But at the same time, if we want to judge for a second, it, it really doesn't make any sense. I yeah. think we all kind of had that understanding. And, and so, so basically, the EEOC started investigating a little bit, and LULAC, the League of United Latin American uh, Citizens, which is an advocacy group for uh, Latin Americans, of course. You may have heard of them. So apparently they were, he, he was going to meet with them, but very intelligently decided to cancel in order to confer with his counsel first, yeah. which makes, makes sense because <laughs> I'm not intimately aware, but just like the NAACP or ACLU, LULAC is, is known for pursuing litigation, and I don't think they would bat an eye in, in pursuing such to make an example. Because by the way, this is not the first nor the last restaurant or business that has some kind of language, English only policy that may not be legal. Yeah. And just to, to make it clear here, I mean, the, the big thing is whether this is discriminatory against people of a certain country of origin. So that's, I think there's some issues with p- potential harassment as well or at least claims maybe as such, but what we're dealing with is discrimination. So what you just kind of touched on, this isn't the first instance, I mean, far from it. For example, we have this issue, this matter in 2012, 
the EEOC reached a $2.44 million settlement in a class action suit against the University of Incarnate Word in San Antonio, dealing with 18 Hispanic housekeepers who were subjected to an English-only rule. And this is where you know, some alleged har- harassment as a result, uh, all due to their national origin. Let's see. And, and just to get in some of the specifics here, some of the employees spoke little to no English. Others testified Spanish was their primary language, even though they were born in the U.S. Other employees were bilingual. And basically, I mean, it's kind of what we touched on before. It's workers complained they had difficulty complying with the rule because they did not speak English or, you know, basically it's kind of if you know somebody whose first language is Spanish, you're, it's just going to be you know, like a second nature to start speaking with them in Spanish. I think that's, yeah. I, when I've been to another country where I found someone that spoke English pretty fluently, it, I instantly go into that. Not that I speak other languages, but it just. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, of course. I mean, especially if your coworker speaks the exact same language. And that's what's, that's what's, that was what was really a big problem in this case is that this is not just English only with the, you know, with customers or in front of other people, this is English only all the time. So that means that if even if you're in a room cleaning a room, I think these these people were housekeepers and they were talking to each other and they're talking in Spanish, that was somehow prohibited. And so what would you say, what could be the valid business reason there? Yeah. There's no excuse to say that, you know, it can, you know, speed things up. I don't know, you know, whatever. I mean, for example, if you said there's no talking because talking is a distraction for work that is like 10 times more legitimate and <laughs> rational than yeah. you know you can't speak in spanish right yeah no you're you're exactly right i mean the only explanation would just be like in this instance with the housekeepers if they're two people that speak spanish you know cleaning and only talking to each other the only explanation is you are I'm, I'm, I can't, well, I can't say racist because it doesn't necessarily deal with race. Originist? I don't know. What's the... I think the word is xenophobic, possibly. But it's not necessarily a fear of outsiders. Well, some kind of combination of xenophobia and racism. I'm sure someone can tell us a, a more perfect term. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to say racism because it could be someone of a certain race that's still in that situation. True. But I, I think people get the idea. Ethnicity. Yeah. Actually, someone used the word ethnist with me this last week, so... I don't know if that's a word. Yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, this is, and I think we've seen also, I mean, I've, I've seen personal experiences where, you know, people make comments about you go to a restaurant, whether it's a Chinese restaurant that has Spanish speaking cooks or, or, or what have you. And there's this kind of, and I've heard, you know, kind of anecdotes of, of people, hey, look, you know, in the kitchen, don't speak Spanish loudly because then somehow that's going to have some kind of negative effect. And these are the kinds of things that on like one hand, someone can say like, okay, I understand the rationale behind it because so-called people want to have this authentic Chinese so-called food, but then they go to the, but, but having those kinds of restrictions and, and, and actually making a policy is you really, really have to be careful about that because the law is pretty clear in the sense that, and I think you mentioned it, that at first, Language is not a particular protected class, but it has a direct connection with national origin. Yeah, but that is also why when, it, when you you get into a little bit of nuance, because even with the United States, you can have different accents and languages. Like for example, you you could in theory discriminate against people's accent from because they're from the South or from the East, or even a Hawaiian accent. Even in Hawaii, they have you know still they still still speak local languages there. 
and the national origins still could be the U.S., right? And and that does pose some complexity to the issue, but I, I'm just kind of pointing out that really the, the discriminatory practice, as you mentioned, comes from the national origin level. Right, exactly. And, you know, let's get into it here, the, the actual kind of the law and what we're talking about on the federal side is the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, ADEA. You know, like, like you said, we're dealing with national origin. What has the EEOC said? Basically this, to summarize, rules requiring employees to speak only English in the workplace violate the law unless they're reasonably necessary to the operation of business, which we'll get to. So really, a, a rule requiring employees to speak only English in the workplace at all times, including breaks, lunch, etc., is rarely going to be justified. And that's, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, we, we, it's in line with what we've kind of discussed so far. And that goes to that University of Incarnate Word in San Antonio, where that they settled for 18 different employees. They they settled for a reason for 2.44 million. That's that's a pretty good sizable settlement for for those number of employees. Right. So reasonably necessary to the operation of business. You know, a business necessity. What exactly does that entail? You know, and I think it's obviously it's a, a typical situation where you know it's there's gray area. But you know, it's for this English only rule. So Communications of customers, potentially coworkers, supervisors that speak only English. I mean, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Emergencies or other situations where the workers must speak a common language. Like any kind of safety issue. Yeah. Yeah. Like you don't want to say like in, you know, a 911 operator that doesn't know English. That, that wouldn't be very helpful. <laughs> right. So for work assignments in which English only is needed to promote efficiency, which we've you know, no surprise either. That gives you a little bit of work wiggle room because what exactly is efficiency and all that, but we'll take it at, take it as is. Yeah, and I think that's what the uh, owner of Leon's Frozen Custard was trying to... <laughs> trying to argue. Trying yeah. to, yeah. And then to enable a supervisor who only speaks English to monitor the performance of an employee whose job duties require communication with coworkers or customers. So it's kind of a mismatch of some of the other ones. And and that's also a little difficult because the the frozen yogurt place owner could say, well, I don't speak Spanish. And when my employee is speaking Spanish with the customer, how am I able to evaluate or manage that employee to make sure that they're doing a good job, that they're saying something appropriate? I I was, we were thinking about earlier, when we do these podcast episodes, we obviously try to make something relevant to our clients and, and also obviously potential clients as well. And, And I was just thinking like with this topic, you know, Rob Schneider is not the type of person that is going to be a client of Pasha Law. I mean, I'm just being frank, right? Because if you as a business owner already has a mentality that I'm going to kind of go in this shooting from the hip without really a reflection of what is right and what is wrong, and you're you're not going to seek an attorney and you're going to be, be end up being on the front page of Yahoo News where a podcast like us starts talking about how silly you are. And And point being is that as a business owner, you really have to take an active role to do this. And and frankly, if if maybe he managed a little bit better, he could have come up with a little little bit better position on justifying how he implements his his policy. Frankly, right. And that's you know, if I personally haven't come across a business that wanted at least a client of ours that wanted to implement a similar policy of English only. But if they did, you know, it's there's some ways I guess you could structure it to. To make it in compliance here with the law, I mean, there's there is no t- the things we discussed earlier. You know, what is a business necessity? That's not a 
a set of factors or you know anything like that. There's no you know hardline test for this, but there's ways to go about it, and it should be fairly. And it should make sense based on what we've talked about so far. So yeah, as, as we've shown, there are legitimate reasons to do so. So like for example, now this wasn't in the U.S., but I think the same rules apply. Uber in England, they were facing some government kind of oversight, etc., because they have an English-only policy. The idea that their drivers must be able to pass some test showing that they speak English, and the, really the the issue there was that because. You have uh, drivers that may have got educated outside and being able to access their certificate, and now they have to pay for a test. And there were some other issues regarding kind of proof of that. But the point being is that having a driver in the city, having your driver know English, and we've all experienced this, is tremendously helpful in giving directions and telling them where to go yeah. and for safety purposes. And so I think those kinds of policies in this case, you could easily make it legitimate, even though, by the way, Uber drivers aren't considered employees in in the United States. Yeah, in the U.S. Topic for another day. By the way, did did you hear that in England there was a case that found that Uber drivers had to be paid a minimum wage? They were like, they made this new class of workers where they're not quite employees or independent contractors. It's crazy. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know how that that can affect what's going on over here because there's no such thing as a I can't remember the term they use but some kind of worker class of uh, citizen. Huh. Yeah, I don't see that working out here either. But yeah, well, so yeah, what you know? How can you go about it? You, what you just touched on safety justification behind having some sort of English. I don't want to say English only policy. I, I'll say restrictive policy to speak <laughs> to not speaking English. I don't know how you want to word it, but. Safety justifications, other business justifications, effectiveness in the rule in carrying out the purpose behind those justifications, and then the English proficiency of workers affected by the rule. I mean, it's again, it's if somebody would come to us and ask, you know, how can I make this English only policy of my for my employees legal? It's a conversation that's not going to be able to be sorted out with you know a couple red lines and an agreement. I don't think. No, not at all. It's. There's, it's, there's a lot of nuance to it. it. It comes down to how you implement the policy. And, and one policy for one business may not be compliant with another business. And that kind of gives the, demonstrates how, you know, using boilerplate employment manuals and copy and pasting agreements often don't work and just create more problems than, than anything. Yeah, I mean, and just generally speaking, some law, I mean, there are definitely employment laws out there where the employer has to provide certain information to the employees in their language that they speak. So it's not like, you know, that's true. Certain. And if, if your employers of certain sizes, depending upon the state, depending upon the language they speak, this is in California among other states that especially if uh, this also applies, if you negotiate, sometimes you'll have, we're getting a little tangent here, but like, for example, if the manager or the hiring manager speaks Spanish and all the negotiation and discussion was done in Spanish and then you hand them over an English contract, that's not appropriate. There are laws that protect those those types of uh, situations where you may have to actually have the the actual contract in a in translated into Spanish, et cetera. And so again, it just kind of elaborates more on some of these nuances of, of when you're dealing with uh, other cultures and language. And, and I kind of wanted to talk about 
I wanted to talk about this topic a little bit because of what's going on in the nation right now and the topic of immigration and and it's a it's a common topic to come come up very often when you have an employment force that is not of the same national origin as the owner, which happens often. Right. And in, in, in two, the year 2000, so very, 16 years ago, yeah. Yeah, a lot has changed. 45, approximately 45 million Americans spoke another language than English in the home. I, I mean, that has to have just dramatically increased since then. There's no doubt. And that, and that actually is this, the number that EOC still uses. So I don't know why they haven't updated that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, 16 years is a lot. I mean, yeah, I, I can't, I, I imagine that's uh, increased quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. Well, anyway, so. Thanks for bearing with us. Uh, a little bit rusty, but you know, I think we'll, we'll hit our stride again by the end of the year. Yeah, it was a nice month off. We didn't tell them why we're, we were going to tell them as a surprise. Oh, uh, yeah. We left that cliffhanger. I guess the appropriate thing to do would be to bring that. Usually when there's a cliffhanger, it gets brought up immediately at the, uh, beginning of the next season <laughs> we should have yeah because we, we well we, we're spending a lot of time developing our second podcast <laughs> legally sound smart dads smart dads no that's true both of us had baby daughters that sounds weird my wife and i had a baby daughter <laughs> and matt's wife and he also had a baby daughter within a couple of weeks of each other which was uh yeah a fun coincidence for us uh yeah and also timed out perfectly in some ways because it was staggered because we were a little worried that it was going to happen right after each other and, and Pashala would be closed down for a little bit, but uh, yeah. we managed to push through. Yeah, we lucked out, so keep on, keep on moving on. Yeah. But, all right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. Yep. Keep it sound. Keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.